Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully boys and girls. This is another episode of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. Together we are both bald. Oh, that, yes. was, that wasn't as exciting as I expected it to be. We are the very bald people. Uh, we are here to talk to you about economics, about finance, about investing, about uh, the dangers, the risks, the benefits, all that good stuff. Uh, but before we get started on that, we have some disclosures that we've got to run. Those disclosures are relatively important. Uh, would you like to start the disclosures, sir? The Personal Wealth Coach is not only the name of this radio program, it's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisor. Did you say yeah. rodeo program? It's a rodeo program. Okay, yes. It's a, it's, we're a broadcast rodeo program. This radio program is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm in Salado, Texas. That doesn't mean the SEC approves or disapproves what we do. It just means they're our regulator. Um, it is, uh, we don't pay for the radio program, nor are we paid for the radio program, although we do advertise on KTEM. There's two of the disclosures. You yeah. can get, oh, even, even though the uh, firm that we just mentioned, the Personal Wealth Coach, which is also the name of this radio program, is an SEC registered investment advisor, we're not giving you investment advice on the air. Uh, what we are giving you here is educational content, hopefully stuff that you'll enjoy rather than the stuff that you fall asleep in class over. But if you fall asleep, at least enjoy that and don't be driving when you do it. And the information that we provide in this educational information radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to its accuracy or completeness. How do you like that? You always ask me how I like it, and I know you like it, Um, but I really, I'm not a big fan of legalese. I could just say, hey, the stuff that we're getting is from pretty reliable sources, but it was not... All the research was not all done by us. We're doing research on other people's research. Yeah, but you're using, you know, the the very deep economic term stuff. Yeah, technical details like stuff and um, things, such. 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 Yeah, right. I like that more than legalese. And also, if you'd like to join with us uh, on this today, which is uh, what is today? Today is the twelfth of the twelfth of the twenty twentieth. 12, 12, 2020. And if you'd like to join with us and ask us some questions or make some comments, you're certainly welcome to do so, but you need to do so by email. And the email address for Jake is jake at tpwc.com. And for me, Jeff is jeff at tpwc.com. You can send it to one or the other or both of us. And we will attempt to address it on the air. And we actually have a question already. Now we, we have a well-wish as well as a question. Um, we have, Philip sent me a well-wish before John sent the question. Philip, thanks. We, uh, he says, just wanted to wish you all a great Saturday. Looking forward to an excellent show from you guys today. Oh, man. Did you just set the standards high? Excellence? Ugh. Wait a minute. You mean he had a well? Uh, yeah. And he made a wish in the well. He wished that y'all had a great Saturday. Thank you, thank you, Philip. We wish you a great Saturday as well. Um, That's more of a y'all wish, isn't it? Yeah, it's a y'all wish, well wish. Good. But we wished him as well. So now the well wishing is done. So we want to talk about the markets first. Sure. Let's see if I can find the markets to talk about them. Let's see here. Uh, well, the stock market went down a little bit this week. It did have a new record during the week, but that was on Tuesday. And after that, it kind of staggered downward, zigzagging back and forth. And it finally fell about 1% um, for the week. It's still up about 13.39% year to date. It's still led and dominated by about 10 stocks, although the the smaller value-based stocks are starting to come up. The larger growth-based stocks that are priced on potential future returns, I don't know if they're priced on potential future returns. I think they're more priced on this thing's been going up, so I'm going to buy some. Um, Because the future returns 
Let's put it like this. Amazon would have to be the sole provider of goods in the United States and most services in the United States justifies current price. That's so, correct. Well, that works out. I think the Justice Department would move to do something before it got to that point, but you never can tell. Right. And there's there's good. We've got lots of subjects to talk about in that when we're done with the market. Facebook has been approached by the Justice Department, and I've got a nice story to tell about this. But let's go ahead with with the market. The other side of the market, the part that we that not doesn't get as much attention, but is a pretty good forecaster of what's to come is the bond market. And we use the 10-year U.S. Treasury note as the benchmark because that's the generally accepted benchmark for the bond market. And uh, it tried really hard last week to get above 1% yield. Uh, so in other words, if you had a 10-year Treasury note and you put $10,000 in it, uh, you've got a 1% yield, almost a 1% yield if you bought one last week. However, this week, uh, it's the yield slid downhill and finally finished at 0 0.887, 0 0.887 down 8.75. And remember, only a year ago, the 10-year Treasury was at record lows at a 1.6% yield. I remember when the 10-year Treasury used to have a 6% yield, and 3% and is kind of standard through history. Yeah, last, last year at about this point, actually a little bit earlier uh, than this point in, in late November, early December, we had a call from a listener saying, did we think that we were going to see 3% first or 2% first on the treasury yield? And we said, we didn't know. Still don't know what's going on. I can tell you that it's below 1%. It cannot seem to get above 1% yield, which it tells you a lot about where the bond market thinks the economy is going in the immediate future. Um, the news that brought all the markets down and except oil, you know, oil's up on um, greater demand from China of all things, was that the congressional compromise on the, on a fiscal stimulus is actually a fiscal relief bill is getting uh, less likely to happen. So, so what you're saying is that compromise is difficult right now. Is that what you're? Are you implying that? Apparently, there are some uh, points that the Democrats want and the Republicans don't want. Mainly, some of the Republicans want the same thing the Democrats do, but there's enough Republicans who just don't want a stimulus bill of any form or fashion that they're having a lot of trouble coming up with a unified position. Anyway, that's causing, uh, that's causing some depressing future conditions to appear in the market. When I say future conditions... The market is based, the market, both the bond market and the stock market, values are based on what they think the future is going to be like in the economy. In the stock market case, it's, it is earnings in the stocks that are, carry, that are in the S&P 500. And in the bond market, it's a demand for loans. And both of them are saying something quite different, but both of them have moved kind of together recently, which is sort of an interesting thing. Um, but the combination of the fact that we just broke all records for hospitalizations and new coronavirus cases and deaths in last week several times kind of has the bond market and the stock market becoming a little more cautious because the potential is there for a second down leg in the economy to occur in the first quarter of next year. Um, oil prices, as we said, as I said earlier, we didn't say that, I said that. Uh, West Texas Intermediate uh, rose to 46.57, up about 1% for the week. And the reason is China wants more oil, and we're exporting more oil to China. And there's another little piece of good news that continues. Uh, we mentioned it last week, but it's important to note, and that is that uh, commodities prices are rising very nicely. Copper, uh, steel, and things like that are rising because, again, mostly from demand from China. The big demand from China, though, is the demand for grains from the United States. The prices of grains are hitting, in some cases, near record levels as the Chinese want to rebuild their swine herds. So that's the markets. All right. We got a whole series of questions now. Um, and I'm going to throw them out there and let you guys know we've received the emails. So, uh, John sent out, what is the IPO process? 
who gets to buy the initial shares, and why do some take off and why do some fall flat? We've got uh, Alan who says, could you please discuss the pros and cons of moving assets from a traditional IRA to a Roth? And Stephen says, what is the minimum or maximum income amount in which individuals will have to pay back their portion of the OASDI payment to the Treasury starting in January 2021? The OASDI, just I think he, he was trying to test our knowledge. It's the old age survivors and disabilities insurance portion of Social Security. Uh, Social Security uh, so we'll we'll hit these one at a time, shall we? I'm, I'm tempted to just jump into each one as we go. Just talk about all of them at the same time. Yeah, and well, the the IPOs let loose on the Social Securities market uh, with a Roth IRA, and that's that's the end yep. of the. What was that? With the OASDI. Right. Yeah. Um, so we're going to hit first the IPOs. Uh, do you mind if I start that? I can hand it back go, to you. Go for it. There's a traditional route to IPO. What is IPO besides a strange three-letter combination? Initial public offering. That's when a, a company, you have a company that you've built over a long period of time and you say, I want to expand quickly. I may or may not want to retain control. If I sell this to the public rather than to just very sophisticated or people that have already invested or the people that were part of the founding of the company. If I sell this to the public, then we have access to two things. One, maybe a bunch of money to me for founding the company. Two, maybe a bunch of money to the company to uh, fund its expansion and new things into the future. So an initial public offering traditionally requires an investment bank. What's an investment bank? Well, there's two kinds of banks. And sometimes they're the same kind of bank. Let's just get confusing for a second. Uh, there's an investment bank and there's a, there's a commercial bank. What's the difference? Well, commercial bank is the one where you're depositing your paycheck. The investment bank is the one that's helping companies issue bonds uh, and helping companies issue stocks, uh, that sort of thing. So, J.P. Morgan Chase is a great example of one that is both. J.P. Morgan is an investment bank. Chase is a commercial bank, and they are the same company. Just to confuse you a little bit. Okay, so what is the normal IPO process? The company goes to an investment bank and says, we need to be listed on the stock market, and we would like that to happen. The underwriters at that investment bank, they're called underwriters because they write their name beneath saying, we have checked all their data. We believe this is a good company and here's all the data about the company. They release all that research. They just dig, dig deep into the company. They look at all the books, all the records, all the accounting, make sure it's all uh, fits the needs. There's a lot of regulations that you have to follow to be a publicly traded company. And then they offer that information up to the public. That period after offering that information up is called the red herring period. Okay, where did where in the world? It sounds like a red herring to me, doesn't it? Well, what does the word red herring come from? That's how you train coon dogs. Yes. <clears throat> so what does this have to do with dogs? To train a coon dog, you take some herring that you have recently caught, and you smoke it. When you smoke fish, it turns red. Then you tie a rope or a string to the mouth of that herring, and you run through the woods, dragging that herring behind you to train the young puppies to find the trail of scent. This is essentially the same thing that's being done by the investment bank. They, essentially? Essentially. They, they take fish, and they smoke it, and they run through the woods with, no, it's really not essentially the same thing that they're doing at all. What they're doing is they've released all this information and they expect you to peruse that information at great length and to dig through it and stick your sniffer all through it to smell if you smell any fishiness. And it's in something called a prospectus, which any purchaser of a mutual fund has heard of. Because a mutual fund that is considered an open-ended mutual fund is always in the red herring stage. It is always in the, we are presenting you with all the information that we have available about the holdings of the fund and the reason that the fund exists. 
So an open-ended mutual fund is in a constant IPO. It is, that's why it's called open-ended. It's, uh, the initial public offering is ongoing. When you buy shares, you're buying it directly from the mutual fund company, not from other shareholders. They may get those shares from other shareholders to sell them to you, but if you put more money in there and the money arrives in the coffers of the, of the mutual fund, they can turn and buy new stuff with that money and issue new shares to you. It, it, can, um, it, it gets a little complicated there. That's the traditional IPO. And during the red herring period, by the way, the, nobody's allowed to really talk publicly about their opinions about the company from inside the company. That comes after the initial public offering is over. There are other ways to go to IPO. Um, the most popular way right now is there are these old and defunct companies that were publicly listed. So they already had their IPOs back in the 1970s or the 1980s. And they're, they're now defunct, which I think should be a new type of music genre. We already have funk. We should have defunct just for the fun of it. We could have, um, uh, well, we could have JCPenney in there. We could have Kmart in there, defunct bands. Anyway, these companies that may or may not be bankrupt are still listed on the stock exchange. And if you have a private company and you want to go public, and it's quite expensive to go public because you've got to meet all these requirements, and the investment bank takes a chunk of every share that is uh, that is purchased. They take a little piece of that. That's how they get paid for doing the underwriting. So if you want to do it yourself, this is where the new kind of company that we've talked about in the past sounds almost like what you do when you're drywalling. It's a SPAC, not spackle. A spe- special acquisition or special purpose acquisition company. Basically, a private company goes on and buys the totality of a publicly listed company that is defunct and merges their company. They keep the old symbol on the stock exchange, but now they're listable. And that's the complicated stuff. I'll hand it over to you. Maybe more complicated. Social SPACs who actually file for an IPO that says they're doing nothing except buying other companies, which makes a really simple IPO because all they have is cash. They don't have any outstanding debt. They don't have any cash flow. They don't have anything. They just want to list themselves. And they, so they list, the SPAC company lists itself. It's a very simple IPO. Not much to investigate. Yeah, they the have, red herring is, is almost nothing because there's nothing there to investigate. And then what they do is they agree with companies that want to list themselves publicly but don't want to go through the inspection process and the expense, expense of filing and and, and, oh, and oh, yeah, all that transparency stuff, all that stuff where you get to see what's inside. Oh, I'm sorry, so I was a little sarcastic there. We're a little bit, we're a little bit uh, skeptical of SPACs, by the way. It reminds us an awful lot of something that happened in the 1720s uh, when there was a stock market, the first record, carefully recorded stock market craze uh, called the South Sea Bubble. And uh, there were, they were companies that, listed publicly by the way the way you listed publicly in the 1700s was you simply published something in the newspaper saying we'd like your money and we'll send you shares uh which was a much more simple process right but companies that said an an initial offering an offering of stock for a purpose to be announced later which is what a SPAC is well and and if you think for a minute uh there is one very well-known SPAC that we like it wasn't called a SPAC and hasn't really been called a SPAC, and that's Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is a SPAC. It's a yep. really high quality one, so we are reluctant about SPACs, but they they can be done appropriately as well. Um, so that's the IPO process. Who gets to buy the initial shares? That's the and and why do some take off and why do some fall flat? If we're talking the traditional route. The people that get to buy the first shares, you're going to love this. It's the people that are already clients of whatever the investment bank is chosen, whichever investment bank, they get to choose from their clients. They say, hey, guys, you guys want to be in on the IPO? It is cronyism. (laughs) Well, it's not just cronyism. It's generally billionaires and corporations that buy the shares initially. Yeah, and, And, and the employees of the company that... Uh, that maybe got issued some 
grants and so on. And in many cases, it's banks, uh, it's uh, insurance companies, it's pension funds that are initial, initially line up to buy the shares because they're the big customers of the bank of the investment bank that is uh, issuing the initial shares. That's who gets the initial slice of shares. And they, in many cases, sell them immediately under the open market. Um, why do some of these take off and why do some of them fall flat? That's the last part of the question. Because the underwriting investment bank messed up really, really badly. Their job is to try to figure out what the appropriate market price is for the company. And they, their opening price is designed to say this is the amount, the best amount that's going to go to the corporation. When an IPO opens and then shoots up into the stratosphere on the second day, that's bad for the company that's being listed because the initial offering is when they get their money for the sale of the shares. If the stock price goes up by triple or quadruple, they only get a portion of that that took place at the very initial offering. That means that the investment bank could have opened up at a higher price and the company could have gotten more for their shares rather than somebody, a crony of the investment bank, stepping in and buying a share and then turning around and selling it for a quadruple profit. The initial company, the listing company, should have received that asset. If it falls flat, it's the opposite of that, where the investment bank should have said this company's not worth enough or we should just delay the IPO because there's not a demand for this stock. Um, you want to you add any more to that? Well, as an example that's recently occurred, and I'm looking for the multiple, Airbnb just did an IPO. And on the first day of trading, it went up to $100 billion. And I think it was, I'm trying to see what the initial, the initial public offering, it went up 113% above the initial public offering price of $68. So it went from $68 to 144.71 after the IPO, which means that Airbnb who was going to use the money, the $68 billion to buy more services and buy more things and do the things to make the company expand only got less than half the money that the stock was worth, which means that uh, it didn't do very well. Uh, and it went up from uh, it went up from $68, which was what the investment bank said it ought to be worth on the market when they opened it up. And it went to 144.71 the next day, which meant that they could have priced it at $150 a share, and they still would have sold all the shares. So that's when they fall flat or when they leap into the stratosphere. It's because the investment bank totally misjudged what the market was willing to pay for this company, and that is really in inside the investment banking world, sometimes you get kudos for that. You get like a big thumbs up. Um, and that's part of the due diligence that has to be done by the corporation that's trying to be listed. And what is the style and practice of the investment bank? Do they intentionally lower the price so that their own clients can have a better gain? Um, that's technically illegal, but it's very hard to prove. The other side of that is that the executives at Airbnb, for example, got offering, got given a certain percentage of stock relative to what part of the ownership they retained. So if they every share of stock that they got given by um, the investment bank doubled and more in value in one day, that means instead of the money going to the corporation, it went to the executives, which is another conflict of interest that right. works out for the executives. Now they, in many cases are not able to sell the stock for a given period of time after the IPO. And a lot of times the, the, the mania over the IPO is one of the things that causes the, the stock to jump way up into the stratosphere. And then maybe it falls down slowly after that down into more normal area. And the executives might find themselves selling later on down the road at a lower price. But that's not, that's not always the case. Uh, and a lot of the big, big companies that we hear about IPOing these days, with the market the way it is in a big bull market, there tends to be a big leap up after the IPO. And it's kind of like when we talk about the strength of the dollar. It's not necessarily a good thing to have a strong dollar 
if we're trying to export. It's a great thing for importing. Um, when you're talking about an IPO, having a strong IPO can give your company a good reputation. But would you rather have a good reputation or the money? That's why you're listing. It's not for the reputation. It's to bring money into the coffers of the company. So I realize that was a long-winded answer to what seems like a pretty simple thing because companies are IPOing all the time. But it is a convoluted and, dare I say, stupid process. <laughs> we haven't got a better one, though. He's made Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, into his worth jump from half of that to $11 billion in one day. Wow. Okay. So the we, that, there's a problem here then. Well, let me throw one other thing out. Okay. In cases, something like Airbnb will do an IPO. The stock will double in a day. And six months later, when the insiders still haven't legally been able to sell their stock, it may have fallen back below the IPO price, in which case uh, their initial excitement about his initial excitement about being 11 billionaire uh, might fall all the way back to where he was only a two or three billionaire, which would be terrible. Right. Sure okay. would depress. Yeah. It's, it's tough to, you know, have that horrible, horrible trauma of being made an ultra billionaire and then being made a slightly less ultra billionaire in a very short period of time. It's, it's tough. And I don't, I think he may need therapy afterwards. It's going to be you know, a lot of Kleenex, you know, I think he can afford it, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, Alan asked the question, could you please discuss the pros and cons of moving assets from a traditional IRA to a Roth, uh, specifically a Roth IRA? We actually did a podcast on that that hasn't been published yet. It's about a half-hour podcast. We're going to cover it much more lightly on this one. Uh, if your income is low this year and you have a lot of money in a traditional IRA, you might want to consider converting to a Roth. Now, the might is considering what's going to happen in the future. Do you expect to be in a high tax bracket later? If so, then it's a, a decent idea to talk to a tax preparer and say, what can I take from a, to convert from a traditional IRA to a Roth without hurting myself too badly in taxes? You don't want to put yourself in a higher tax bracket than when you were deferring your money. To explain that, if you were putting money into an IRA over the years so that you could lower your taxes and then you decide to convert to a Roth in a year and decide that you will pay a higher tax rate on the money that you're converting than the day that you saved it away, that's not a good... I mean, the government will love you for it. They like that. So it's a complicated process that, that you really need to work with whomever is preparing your taxes, even if it's you. Get an estimate of what you think is a good number based on what you expect your, your retirement income to be uh, in the future. If you can convert it to a Roth now at a lower rate than you think you'll be in the future, then that tends to be a good idea because you won't have to pay taxes on the Roth later. It's important to look at what converting the IRA, the traditional IRA into a Roth IRA will do to your tax brackets. Though. Right. Let's just, and I recently talked to somebody who uh, was in the literally in the seven, I think, yeah, fifteen percent tax bracket. He was in the fifteen percent tax bracket, and but he's right at the top of the fifteen percent tax bracket. And he's wondering whether he should be converting from his Roth, from his IRA into a Roth IRA. The problem with that was he was right at the top of the fifteen percent tax bracket. So as soon as he started converting, he'd go to the twenty-two percent tax bracket. The, when we looked at his probable future tax brackets out into the future, it still he was still probably going to be around the 15% tax bracket for a long time into the future. And so suddenly putting himself into the 22% tax bracket for the purpose of paying taxes on his IRA didn't make a great deal of sense. So in that case, it didn't work out real well for him. It, on the other hand, if you're in the 22, what's the next one? 25, I think it is now in the, under the current tax law. I think so. So if you're in the 22 and you got a lot of room before you go to the 25 and you'll probably be in the 22 when you retire, then are you maybe in the 25% tax bracket when you retire because the tax law is going to change sooner or later. In 2025, it will go back up. We'll go in 2025 unless, of course, the, it's raised sooner. Right. In that case, if you can convert and stay in a low tax bracket today, rather than paying your taxes in a higher bracket, it makes sense to convert. 
Yeah, and it's complicated, and you probably don't want to do the whole thing all at once, especially if it's a big one. Uh, there's some other pieces about it as well. Um, it, it's not all that beneficial to the current owner of the IRA, but if you want your IRA to be going to your offspring at some point, to your heirs, to charities, to whatever, some other entity than you after you die. Well, charities don't pay taxes on it, so deferring the taxes works real well. Right. So that's one of the pieces that I was actually about to say. You didn't added that in there. If it's going to a charity, it's not that big a deal. You just leave it to the charity. It's going to not pay taxes on that because it's a 501c3. That's what charities are. However, if you're leaving it to your heirs and you have a significant portfolio and your heirs are doing well, I mean, again, this is one of those crying your beer, you guys are doing so well and you're giving money to each other. And But the reality is that we want to do this as smartly as possible you have your entire rest of your life to slowly take that money and in the appropriate tax bracket to you. You can make a decision on how much you want to you want to withdraw from these things going forward, minus the required distribution. The government will tell you at a certain age that you need to take money out of these IRAs, and and it is seventy and a half for people that are already seventy and a half uh, as of twenty nineteen. But it's 72 for people that weren't 70 and a half as of 2019. How is that for crazy complicated for no particular reason? Um, at that age, the IRS will say, the Labor Department will say, they gather up all of the Uncle Sam folks and they say, you got to take some money out. And if it's a lot of money, then you'll have to take a lot of money out and that's taxable. So if we can get ahead of it, say you retire early. Well, a lot of people would have that have a significant portfolio retire early then you have a time period where you get a lot of control over how much income you take in that year. And you can start converting before you get to that mandatory state of having to withdraw. And I have to throw this in here because I'm a nerd. You guys know that. We're already talking about very nerdly subjects. But this year, you're not required to take your required minimum distribution. But they still call it a required minimum distribution. I think for the year 2020, just to cap off this year that we've all had so much fun with, we should uh, immortalize the unrequired required minimum distribution because. Uh, so yeah. there, there are more pros and cons, and we can go into more detail, but I think, I think on the radio it, it might better serve for us to go on to the next subject. You already mentioned this, but it's a, it is a big deal that you only have 10 years now to get the money out of the, once it's it's inherited by somebody other than the spouse. You right. only have to get all that money converted into income. Well, it's it's 10 years unless you're less than 10 years younger than the person that gave it to you. How's that for weird? If yeah. you're less than 10 years younger? Yeah, if you're less than 10 years younger, you can use your own life expectancy to pull it uh -huh. out. But if you're more than 10 years younger, which is like more than, more than 10 younger, so that's a negative, um, you have to take it out at maximum over a 10-year period. Well, there's another exception that is important to some people, and that is if a person is disabled. That's right. And generally speaking, the definition of disabled is the same one that applies to Social Security. Uh, if a person is disabled, it can be put into a it can be put into a trust where it is extended over their life expectancy. All right. So now we're on to the next question. Um, Stephen asks, "What is the minimum or maximum income amount in which individuals will have to pay back their portion of the old age and survivors' disability income payment to the Treasury starting in January of 2021?" That's a complica complicated question. Let me kind of give back some, some backfill here. Do you, you, you know, you said it right. It's complicated. It's complicated. Uh, well, let's get to the strategy of this issue here. Um, the president signed an executive order when Congress uh, wouldn't suspend the payroll tax. So after the CARES Act um, and then coming forward, the president said, I'm going to sign an executive order saying that you don't have to the, the corporations um, and the employ the employers 
don't have to withhold your employee side of your social security tax and your Medicare tax. But you got to pay it, pay back that which you should have paid this year, next year. So this is complicated. Um, the executive orders kind of by definition don't come with a lot of in-depth instructions to the IRS. Uh, a, a tax law or a spending law comes with a great deal of instruction to the IRS on how they build their regulations. What we do know is that from the employer standpoint, many, many employers did not take up the president's offer here because they, they're on the hook for this tax amount if you leave the job um, kind of midstream. Let me kind of explain that. The employer's job is to withhold taxes for you. Uh, that's part of their job. They have their own employer tax side on Social Security and Medicare, and then your side, the employee side. And the, the president said they didn't have to withhold the employee side for this year. Well, next year, they have to start taking that out on top of what they had to take, what they were going to have to take out in 2021. So you're going to have double withholding. And the question is, what is the minimum or maximum income amount in which individuals will have to pay back their portion to the treasury? Well, you don't have to pay it back in a normal sense in that it's just going to be taken out of your paycheck if you still have that job. Otherwise, there's a big question as to who owes it. If you lost the job after having that withheld, not withheld from your paycheck, the company might technically owe the treasury the money, or you might technically own the treasury money. We don't know. The way the IRS is looking at it is they say uh, starting next year, this, this is the new press release, it's a different subject sort of, but it kind of, dovetails in the income maximum from which social security stops getting paid so and once you start making a certain amount of money any money you make above that level social security is not withheld anymore you get to keep it and in 2021 it will be 142,800 dollars um, so that's gone up with inflation a little bit here's the weird part we don't know if we need to use the 2020 figures on income or the 2021 figures on income on the repayment of the 2020 payroll taxes. So to not get overly complicated, the simplest answer to that question is nobody knows yet. The IRS doesn't know. Uh, your tax preparers don't know. They're going to come out with some statement, the IRS is, that says this is how we're going to treat it. Congress may or may not like it. They could change that after it's come out. This is very much like the uh, Small Business Administration and the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, and if it's not clearly defined in advance, it's going to be opinions that create the rule unless Congress writes a new law. So that's where we are. Um, $142,800 plus, you don't pay Social Security tax on that, but you do continue to pay Medicare tax on that. There, I think we beat that one into the ground. I mean, it's a complicated question. I hope we answered it well, but it's hard to do that on the radio. <laughs> it's going to particularly hit the people who did get the payroll tax deferred, and that is including all federal employees. That's right. So... Yeah, even though it wasn't for the whole year, you can see, you can expect to see people in the military can expect to see their net income go down next year. Starting in January. Starting in January, because they will see their, their 6.2%. I, and if the other thing is their 6.2% that they didn't pay in 2020 taken out in 2021. I've seen no guidance, by the way, over what period the money gets sent is taken back is it taken back over a few months over the whole year or what do you know what it is yeah, it's supposed to be over the whole year but that's not definitive and this is the other piece this payroll tax cut was only available for people that had an 
earning threshold below $4,000 per biweekly pay period. So I'm sorry this is complicated. There's no real easy way to say what to expect your income to drop by, but just assume it's twice the Social Security withholding for the first quarter. Um, Because it's only covering September through December of this year, just assume the first quarter of next year you're going to have twice the withholding. It's an assumption, and it may not be right, and it's only going to affect certain people. So the maximum income and the minimum income, they're not even on the same scale. We're, we're talking about 4000 per biweekly pay period versus 140 plus thousand over on the other side. What? They're not even calculated the same way. And this is in the rules. So uh, it wasn't particularly well managed. Let's say it that way. You know, while you've been talking, I've been reading the uh, IRS's guidance on deferred employee payroll tax issued, and it kind of reading between the lines, it looks like that if you if you're not working for the same employer that didn't withhold your ODASI, since we're using that term, right? Um, then it's going to be it's going to be you'll have to report on your income tax return that you didn't get it withheld, right? Which means this will come and get it. Yeah. You'll owe it. But here's the other piece. The company that you used to work for that did not withhold it might owe it too because that's the portion that they send in to the government, not the part that you send in to the government. You're never required to write a check for Social Security and Medicare uh, from your bank account. That's supposed to come from your payroll. Well, in this case, there may be an exception, it looks like. Right. And this side of this. Yeah, this is the big question. And man, uh, I I was talking to uh, some tax preparers about this, and they're they're pulling their hair out because the IRS isn't saying definitively yet. And it may be that the corporations wind up owing this because the law that the executive order influences says it's the responsibility of the employer. The IRS is saying it may be the responsibility of the employee if they're no longer working for the employer that didn't do it. So it's weird. That's, that's, that is an understatement. It is weird. There's, there's no logic behind this. This is goofy-headedness. Basically, if you didn't get your ODASI, your side of it, your 6.2% of side of it, withheld in the last quarter of 2020 don't spend that money yeah um and if you're no longer working for the corporation that you were working for when it wasn't withheld or for the government here's the big one if you're retiring this year from the u.s government you may owe money to the government for the money they did not withhold from your paycheck this year that's goofy Ah, there, there is only so much of this that, that we can reasonably handle before we have to do commercials. And I think commercials make more sense at this point. Yes, I believe so. Even public service announcements make more sense than what we've been talking about. So, uh, Tony, we're going to play some commercials. If you'd like to contact us, uh, we've got emails available, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side of with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake on the mic, and with me on the other mic is... Jeff McClure. Yeah, together we are both bald. Thank you. Uh, We got a follow-up question to the question that we mangled so thoroughly to show the confusing nature of nobody knows anything. Um, The the answer was, being a federal employee, I will budget accordingly where where I will have to pay the full amount back. Thanks for your comments. That's the best we can give you. And we warned about this when the executive order was signed that you may get a pay raise right now, but you're going to get it. It's going to come back out. This is, this is a loan from yourself in the future. By the way, just in case that you thought from the election, you have to pay it back because of the election. 
The president did request that the Secretary of the Treasury investigate methods to avoid having to pay it back to just cancel the Social Security tax for the, that quarter. However, the Secretary of the Treasury did ultimately come back to him and say there ain't no way Congress would have to change the law. Right. The law is clear. Social Security taxes have to get paid if you want to get paid Social Security. How's that for simplified? So basically it was a deferral from a period during which we had an increasing economy into the first quarter where you pay it back during a period when we're likely at this point to have a decreasing economy. I think it was a reverse deferral. Yeah. So normally you would defer something. If you have deferred compensation, you'd say, I'm not going to take it now. I'll take it later. Instead, you said, I'm not going to take it later. I'm going to take it now and I'll pay it back. Which brings us into another subject. And that is that the economy is still growing but the growth is slowing and it's slowing at a pretty fast rate. And I would not be surprised to see that December produced a negative growth in the economy, at least certainly in employment, which leads the economy. Uh, we had a gain in employment of uh, 245,000, which is not the 710,000 we had the previous, uh, the previous month, which is not good. And yeah. that is, that indicates that things are slowing down. November was a slowdown in employment. I suspect we're going to see December. Uh, there's no certainty, but it looks like December is going to go negative. And it really boils down to something very simple. We have a pandemic going. We have record number of people dying per day. It was up to last week for several days. The seven-day moving average is right up at 3,000 people a day dying. And the more people, the, there's a lot of research that's happened on this, and the more that the more people who know somebody who died of COVID-19, the less likely they are to go out and spend their money. And we're seeing that uh, pop up in the, in the credit card usage, which is down 5.5% from where it was. Uh, and we're seeing that people are paying off their debts and we're seeing that people are uh, socking away their money. In other words, the consumer is expecting some bad economic news coming down the road. When we see con when we see credit card usage dropping 5%, let me kind of give an idea of what that means. It isn't everybody's cutting back 5% in their, in their spending. It's a lot of people are still spending exactly as they were. And then another lot of people is not spending almost at all. So that 5% number is significant when you take it from the source. And the source is there's a large group of people that simply have locked up their credit cards and said, I'm not going to use those. I'm terrified that I'm not going to get paid next month. Um, and we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic. We had a massive drop in, in uh, credit card spending. Well, we're seeing a drop in credit card spending again. And what that means is there's a drop in spending. And if there's a drop in spending, there's a drop in profits, which means that we see a slowdown in the economy. Give you some idea. The lag in this is pretty significant because the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Bureau of Economic Analysis take quite a while to assemble all the data. But we have October's information available to us. And October retail sales, not including automobiles and gasoline, grew at 0.2%, which would be 2.4% a year. But in September, it grew at 1.5%. So October was at 0.2. September was at 1.5. What we're seeing is a slowdown in the growth. We're still seeing growth in October. We don't have November's data on that yet. And there is a lot of indication that it may be flat in November, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting year. Um and we've got an, uh, another email from Philip, but we're about out of time for this hour. Do you have something you want to say to wrap up the hour and then we'll handle this next one next hour? No, we'll, just, we'll need to talk about it more next hour. But it looks a lot like the first quarter of next year will take us back into negative growth simply because of the spread of the, the, uh, the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and this, this is something regardless of the politics around the epidemic, it is affecting the behavior of the people, uh, all people. Behavior has changed in the consumer market, in the investment market. It's, it's changed across the board. And we can say and there are some people that still talk about 
the virus as being overblown and other people that say, no, it's much worse than what we realized, that's irrelevant. That stuff from my perspective, from our perspective as economists, when we look at that, it doesn't matter uh, if, if they look at it from a political perspective. We have to look at the consumption numbers, the profitability of the, of the country. And until we get the pandemic behind us, we're in, we really, really are going to have a slower and a tougher time. We're about all out of time. I'm just telling you one minute. Okay. Um, and if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have locally voicemail waiting uh, during the weekends, real live people during the week, uh, a line available at? 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you don't like to type so much. Uh, on there, you can listen to our radio program going back lots of years, read our newsletter, uh, sign up for our newsletter, um, or you can contact us through the contact form or through email jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.